Well, I think most of you know that before I went into seminary and prepared to become a priest, I was a school teacher. And so education is near and dear to my heart and also to my own life's journey, my experience of Catholicism, my conversion and my becoming a priest really was largely an educational uh, endeavor. Uh, it involved learning and education and self-education in particular in a, in a big way. So uh, religious education and catechesis is uh, very important to me. Um, we have taken a break this summer in our religious ed program, but we're going to be starting up next September, and I'd like to uh, sort of speak about this and, and get ready for it and to really have a, have a, a great year uh, ahead of us. Um, so it's important to plan ahead of time. Uh, there was a sociologist, so I'm going to talk about teenage beliefs, teenage religion, teenage religious beliefs. There was a sociological study done, I think starting in 2005, by the name of a guy, Christian Smith, and a team of other sociologists out of North Carolina University. Uh, and they, since that time, they've updated the, the survey uh, quite extensively, regularly up until this point. And um, they interviewed 3,300 uh, young men and women between the ages of 13 and 19, all across the United States of America. Uh, and if you'll notice in your pews, there's only one per pew. I wasn't able to print out more than that. There's one per pew. There's a little handout that talks about, that's basically the heading there. It says, uh, the, the average American teenager's religious beliefs. Okay? And uh, what they saw, of course, there's always exceptions and extremes one way or the other. Uh, but for the most part, the large majority of the teenagers that they interviewed put forth a kind of religious uh, vision that was as follows, and they have these three points to it. And uh, the the main researcher, uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, kind of in a snarky manner, uh, uh, phrased or tagged this religious belief, um, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, okay? And uh, what what you find is that, it's, on the surface, this religious vision sounds okay, but really it the more that you probe into it, it's quite a bit different than historical Christianity. It's quite a bit different than the gospel that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. So uh, we'll see, you get these three main tenets here of this religious belief for, for these teenagers. Uh, what's the moralistic aspect? Well, first of all, basically, um, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught by most world religions, and good people go to heaven when they die. All right, now, on the surface, that doesn't sound so bad or so incompatible with Christianity, but really, the more that you press it and kind of go into it and dig deeper, you start to see that it really is different than Christianity. In particular, when the teenagers were asked about more specific beliefs, more specific religious or theological beliefs, their uniform response was, meh, meh, I don't know, whatever, whatever. It was a very strong indifferentism towards actual content of faith. So what we would think of as the Nicene Creed. You can go through each of the articles of the Nicene Creed. Eh, whatever. Okay. So what we were seeing here is moralism, morals without faith. Morals without faith. And that is not the gospel that Christ came to proclaim. We see in our gospel today, Jesus says, Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear 
Okay, faith comes by hearing, whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So there is a question here. What Jesus is talking about is there's a, there's a fundamental question of truth, of truths that Jesus proclaims that are to be adhered to by faith and then actually promulgated ourselves by the church, okay, and transmitted, preached. And that is going to be an arduous task. And Jesus is saying at the end of the world, when Judgment Day comes, it's going to become very clear and manifest that the gospel is true. And that all the people who opposed it, denied it, and resisted its promulgation were false, were in the wrong. And that those who labored to promote it and to promulgate it will be justified, and their labors will not be in vain. So we see the religion that Jesus came to preach very much involved faith and truth, the question of truth. It requires of us a lot more than, eh, whatever. Uh, so that would be the moralistic element of this, um, of this kind of uh, popular religi- teenage religiosity. What about the second element here, therapeutic? Okay. Well, here's the second tenet of uh, popular teenage religion. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Now, again, on the surface, it's really not too bad, and there's probably a way in which you construe that as true and, and, and read it and interpret it as compatible with Christianity. But again, the more that you kind of dig into this belief, the underlying assumptions very much are at odds with Christianity. So it's always been taught and believed within uh, biblical religion that the central aim is God's glory. That God created the world for his own glory. Okay, God is the central figure, an actor, so to speak, in this drama we call reality, this drama we call life. God's glory is first and foremost of importance. Secondarily, God created the world for our happiness. Okay? So our happiness is second to God's glory. If we serve God and seek his glory, we will be happy. Now, here's another key thing, though, is the happiness that the Bible teaches is primarily a future reality, not a here and a now psychological contentment reality. Okay, And when the kids will say the central purpose in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, what they're really talking about is essentially I'm pursuing immediate goals and desires and being satisfied in my in my attainment of those or dissatisfied or frustrated as it might be. That's what they're talking about. Christianity is putting forth a very different vision. It's saying you serve God. He doesn't serve you. You serve him. His glory is first and foremost. And uh, happiness will follow. Happiness will follow. But it very well might be a delayed gratification. Okay, It might not be an immediate thing that you experience here and now. And we see that again in our gospel. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Okay, so we're talking, you know, the followers of Christ have to be ready for others to kill them. All right? And uh, so suffering is, a, is a, going to be an essential part of Christianity. Now, if you adhere to that other view that the main goal of life is to be happy, you know, in terms of psychological contentment here and now, uh, and to feel good about oneself, suffering doesn't make a lot of sense. Whenever suffering comes into your life, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on, wait a second, what's going on here? You know, I didn't sign up for this. God, where are you? How come you're 
letting me suffer. Okay, but the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim essentially involves suffering. It's part of our journey towards God's glory and towards our own happiness. So uh, here we get to the third element here, this, this phrase, deism. Okay, so moralistic, therapeutic, deism. What is this third tenet here? God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. Okay, so this would be another, the kind of the final main tenet of popular teenage uh, religiosity in America. But again, we see here that it's really the teenager's own life and their goals that are the center of their worlds. God's plan, God's agenda, God's uh, glorification are not central. What's the first thing we pray, though, in the, in the prayer that our Lord taught us? Uh, hallowed be thy name, so that God's holiness would be manifest in the world. That's the central thing that we pray for and that we seek. Thy kingdom come, not my agenda, but your agenda, O God, your rights, okay, and your glory. Let that be first and foremost. Um, and uh, moreover, uh, this is going to require sacrifice. It might involve suffering. It's going to definitely uh, involve a certain bit of inconveniencing of ourselves. But there is good news here. Because despite our suffering, God is going to be very, very close to us. He's not going to be a distant God. He's going to be very, very close to us. And we get to this other passage here in the Gospel that Christ said, uh, Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's knowledge. Even the hairs of your head are counted, so do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So there's a, a great consolation in news that although here we are as true disciples of Christ, putting his agenda first and foremost in our life, he's going to be so close to us. He's going to know us so intimately and deeply that despite any kind of suffering that we might go through, uh, it's going to be okay ultimately at the end. All right. So this is a very different, the biblical vision of reality is very different than the average teenage religiosity of moralistic therapeutic deism. Very, these are two different uh, conflicting worldviews. And quite frankly, the biblical vision of reality is way more exciting and way more demanding, but it's way more exciting. Uh, I'm very, very thankful as I grew up for all the good things that I got from my Catholic education and from the different uh, religious teachers who were in my life. But I, I do have to say that the uh, vision of religion that was given to me when I was very young was more along the lines of moralistic therapeutic deism and not biblical Christianity. And as I got older and started to study scripture and started to study religion, I started to say to myself, hmm, Catholicism is different than what it was given to me as a kid. And you know what? Oh my gosh, it's way more interesting, way more exciting. It's very dramatic. There is a cosmic struggle, if you notice. There's a battle. I think the biggest thing, the difference to me, when I was a really little kid, I always dreamed about being a soldier. Okay, I think a lot of little boys do that. And uh, so, and I would get into competitive sports, and I was interested in competition and, you know, uh, struggle and conflict and whatnot. And uh, trying to prove myself in that, so forth and so on. It's a natural impulse and it's healthy, I think, in, in most youth. Uh, what I started to see as I got older is that Christianity puts forth a very uh, powerful vision of reality that involves struggle and conflict. And it became very, very captivating to me. I'm like, this is way more exciting, way more interesting, you know. It's not beige. 
It's blacks and whites. It's bright reds. It's sharp colors and contrasts. There's good and evil, darkness and light. There are enemies. You know, Jesus is saying repeatedly in the city's gospel, do not fear. Do not fear. I am with you. For what? Because there's this kind of a struggle that's going to take place. Preaching the gospel, promulgating the gospel, being a disciple of Jesus involves struggle, and it involves real risk. Jesus, If Jesus warns the apostles about the possibility of going to hell, what do you think it is for us? All right. So there's a real possibility of going to hell. He says, uh, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both in Gehenna, which is a fancy word for hell. All right. So I started to see, wow, there's a really, there's a lot at, at stake here. And uh, I would say that a lot of the youth are drifting away from church and have been for the past 30 or 40 years because religion has been kind of, it's kind of boring. They kind of presented to them a certain kind of a boring vision of reality. It's not very challenging. There's a real absence of challenge. Uh, also, too, what I would say is when you put forth a religion that doesn't have a lot of demands or requirements uh, or sacrifice, if there's no cost, there's also an implicit message that it's not valuable. You see, if there's no cost, then there's no value. And the kids are like, nah, it's not, it's not valuable. So they don't, they're not motivated to really adhere to it and to get their butts in the church on Sunday and, and whatnot at the minimum, right? Let alone become very serious followers of Christ. Now, here's one more element of the survey that I didn't tell you, okay? And that is that when the kids were asked, where did you get your religious beliefs from? And they said, mom and dad. <laughs> okay, so here I am picking on teenagers, but really this is a vision of religion that's been promulgated down to the youth by the older generation. So what can we do here, practically speaking? This gets me to our religious ed program. Uh, what I'd like to do is just really make sure that this priest is not yet one more person that is enabling this kind of moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, And that our kids are receiving the gospel in its particularities and, it, and with clarity. And that the vision, of uh, this exciting vision that Jesus preaches is being uh, conveyed to the kids. So uh, a few things, just kind of like takeaway points, practical takeaway points. Uh, I think this is fundamentally a crisis of faith. And so it's a moment for us as adults to really question ourselves and do an examination of conscience. Do we hold various tenets of our religion as optional? Oh, I, I, I'll believe this, but that, that's silly. I don't, I don't buy that crap. Okay? Do we pick and choose? Because when we do that, we're teaching the younger generation that faith is optional, that it's not that important. Okay, And so then they say, well, they let go of it. All right, So that's just kind of an examination of conscience point. Uh, also, too, I think here's a paradigm that we can use. What do kids really like? What's the big competitor for religion nowadays but sports? Okay, We can capitalize on that because, look, sports is something they understand. They understand that you've got to work hard to prepare for the game so that you can win it. And so also, in reality, the vision of reality that the Bible puts forth, there are winners and losers. The stakes are very high. There is eternal glory in heaven and eternal misery in hell. And so you've got to prepare and put the effort in so that you can be a winner and not a loser. Uh, so I think that's, that's something we can kind of capitalize on today that kids can understand. And then finally, my appeal would be this. I want to put together a very good, we've got a lot of potential for our religious ed program, but we need catechists, 
Okay, we need solid catechists who are willing to dedicate at least a year, okay, at least a year of their time teaching the kids. And what I'm going to do is I'm not going to micromanage the catechists. I trust them to do their own thing in the different classrooms. But what I am going to do is meet with the catechists as a group, and together we're going to go through a catechism, okay? And I'm going to just kind of enrich the knowledge base of the catechists, and then hopefully that will help them do their job in the classrooms, uh, and then also, too, we're looking for ways to get the parents and the children interacting. All right? It was very interesting this, in this uh, survey that Christian Smith did. They found that the interview that the sociologists did with the kids was the, many times the first time they ever had a conversation with an adult about religion. <laughs> it was the first time. So we're trying to change that. We're trying to get parents to talk to their kids about faith and about religion. So these are some of the things that we're trying to do in our program. And so I put it out, out to you all here. We need catechists. Please consider prayerfully whether or not uh, you could be a catechist for us uh, so that we can have a really great uh, religious ed program that passes on the gospel of Jesus Christ.